Welcome to the Mid the Pines podcast, a place where Grove City College alumni and faculty give voice to their unique stories, contributions, and accomplishments. Our community is blessed with many individuals who are often recognized for their proficiency, purpose, and principles, all celebrated hallmarks of the distinctive Grove City College education. Learn more about their God-given callings and the work they are undertaking for the common good. These are their personal and professional stories. This is Joni Baumgartner with Grove City College, and I'm joined on the Mid the Pines podcast today by Christopher Parker, class of 1993. Chris has served as a music educator for 14 years. He's also been a high school principal and even a substitute teacher for a time. Chris is married to Tracy, and they share their lives in Jasper, New York, with their three beautiful children, a 10-year-old son and nine-year-old twins, a son and daughter. Today's podcast will focus on the story of Chris's prolonged battle with COVID-19 and his miraculous road to recovery where he's encountered the grace of God at many turns. As a warning to our listeners, some parts of Chris's story may be difficult to hear. Chris, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the Mid the Pines podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Chris, it's been a pleasure in advance of this podcast to get to know you a little bit. And I learned that you were a music education major here at the college, which definitely led you to the career that you had. Tell us a little bit about how your career grew out of what you studied here at the college and just what you were doing professionally leading up to the days that the pandemic began. Sure. For 14 years, I was a music educator in both Pennsylvania and New York before I transitioned to a career in school administration. As a music educator, I taught everything from beginning instrumental lessons to general music to marching band. When I served as a high school principal in a small rural school district in the southern tier of New York, I supervised students in grades 7 through 12, and I was fortunate to work with about 40 teachers and staff during that time. During the start of the pandemic, though, it was very difficult and it was a very scary time for us because we didn't really know what was happening. I remember calling all of our staff together in the auditorium to say that we were going to transition to a virtual learning environment, which is something we had never done before, and there were lots of unknowns to everybody. Most of our teachers had never used a virtual learning environment, so there was a large learning curve to get up and running. But more importantly, people were scared about what was happening in our country, in our state, and even in our local community. We didn't know very much about the virus and what was going on, and it was affecting our students and some of our staff members. So we didn't know how long it would take to get up and running, but we started working on that right away. So at the time of the pandemic, you were in the classroom as a music educator or were you a principal at that time? At the start of the pandemic, I was still a principal, but then I transitioned back into working into a classroom. Now let's fast forward just a little bit to year two of the pandemic. You were diagnosed with the virus yourself in the fall of 2021. So what was your experience with that virus at first? Okay, so I was working for um, Arkport Central School District as a full-time music educator. And in order to work in the public schools, you needed to be vaccinated. And one week prior to starting this new position, I did receive a vaccination and it was considered, quote unquote, fully vaccinated. Um, School districts were requiring proof of vaccination as well as a COVID test. To me, it wasn't a big deal because I went through the proper channels and steps. So I went to the school nurse and was tested. Unfortunately, it came back positive and I had to leave the building immediately. Uh, And there was no protocol for 
anything else other than gather your materials and please leave so you don't infect anybody else. On my way home, I called my wife to let her know what was going on. And my initial thought was that I would just be in quarantine for 10 days and be able to return to work. I wasn't really displaying any symptoms and I thought I would be okay. I already knew people who had been quarantined and they didn't have any problem with the virus. Of course, there were people with severe cases with the virus that had passed away too. My own family experienced that with the passing of my father uh, in December of 2020. My dad had been hospitalized with the virus. It severely affected his mind and it kind of hastened the onset of dementia. Uh, he was in the hospital for about two months and it was hard on our family because you weren't allowed to come in and visit or anything. He was there for his birthday on December 23rd and Christmas as well. And the day after Christmas, my dad passed and it was heartbreaking. Because the pandemic was so new, we just weren't able to be with him. We were just all trying to figure out how to be safe. Right. I know this, this has affected so many people. Um, just it's almost impossible to talk with anyone these days who hasn't been personally affected in some way. I'm so sorry for the loss of your dad. I know that you've shared with me previously that your own health, uh, you know, after your diagnosis at school that day, um, took a turn to be very serious quite quickly. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and uh, share with our listeners that point when, when things turned for you? Sure. When I was first diagnosed, um, my own physician prescribed me steroids as well as an inhaler to help deal with the, the symptoms of what was going on. There was really never a time where I made a decision to go to the hospital. I always felt like I was tired or in a malaise during this time. And to get specific, on September 24th, I went to lay down in my son's bedroom and take a nap. Uh, later that afternoon, my wife, Tracy, uh, tried to rouse me from the nap, but she couldn't wake me up. And it was at mm -hmm. that point that she called an ambulance and I was transported to our local hospital in Hornell, New York. When I got there, it was determined that I had uh, slipped into a diabetic coma and that I had COVID pneumonia as well as a secondary lung infection. The medical staff at the St. James Hospital determined that they couldn't meet my needs and they started to look for another facility that could address and accommodate me. Unfortunately, nothing nearby was uh, able to accept me because they were already full with other patients. And so at that time, they put out the call to other hospitals and the Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania had a bed for me. My case was so severe at that time that I was intubated and immediately flown to the center by helicopter. When I arrived, I was admitted into the ICU and for the next three weeks, um, things were very, very tenuous. I remained in a coma and I was placed on 24-hour dialysis because my kidneys had shut down completely. At one point, the doctors thought that I had had a heart attack because of the elevated enzymes in my blood. Additionally, an EEG indicated that I may have had a stroke. Through all of this, a huge burden was placed on my wife, Tracy. At first, she wasn't able to come to the hospital because she and my children were also diagnosed with COVID. Fortunately, they had already been vaccinated, so it wasn't a severe case for them. But she was in constant contact with the doctors at the Geisinger Medical Center. When she was able to come down finally after the quarantine was lifted, she had limited contact with me because of the severity of my case, because of the hospital protocols. My doctor at the ICU started asking her to make decisions that really were life and death in nature. 
And Tracy was in constant contact with our own personal physician to ask what his thoughts are and what he would do in this situation. At one point, things looked so grim that the doctors said if I had another episode or a heart attack, they wouldn't revive me. And there were additional health concerns that needed to be addressed as well. The COVID infection caused my body to start throwing microclots. Um, and the microclots lodged in my feet and in my hands. And I developed gangrene in those areas, and that would be addressed later on by surgery. Tracy, after all of this had passed, she would later tell me that she spent evenings on her knees. Hmm. Crying and praying out to God that he'd make the right decision regarding my care and that he would save me from all of this. And you're here talking with me today. How yeah. amazing. I know I know that you have received tremendous support. You've just mentioned Tracy praying for you and getting others, you know, even on social media to pray for you. How has Tracy and and then other friends and family and people from your church, how have they also come alongside you? Um, and especially during that time when you were going through this? Before we go on to that, I want to circle back. This is important to the story, and it's important of how God showed up. When I was in the coma and coming out of the coma, so somewhere in that haze, I had said to God that I wanted to see my father, but I wanted more time with Tracy and the kids. And he honored that request. And to tie it into with everything that Tracy has done for me and my friends and family, they prayed and prayed and prayed. There were hundreds of people praying for me from Delaware and Maryland to Pennsylvania, Ohio, and, and New York. It really was God showing up through the petition of his people that saved my life. It really did. Because I truly believe if it weren't for their intercession, I would not be here today. That's amazing. Um, can you tell me about some of the tangible ways that you experienced God's love. You have shared with me um, something regarding your mortgage. Oh, sure. There's a church in Maryland that reached out to Tracy, people that we didn't even know but had heard of our story, and they said that they would like to pay for one month of our mortgage um, <laughs> just as a way to bless our family. It's amazing. What a blessing. Tell me a little bit more about being in the hospital. You, you alluded before that you had these microclots in your feet and hands. How did the story unfold from there? While I was in the hospital, I never actually got a look at my feet. But one day, a surgeon named Dr. Parenti showed up and said, Chris, uh, we have to make a decision about your feet. And he said, quite frankly, we need to amputate them. And mm -hmm. so this was early on after I had transitioned out of the ICU into a regular floor. I called Tracy and I said, how do we handle this? And, and we talked about it for a little bit. And then I handed the phone to my nurse and her name is Kelly. And she spoke with Tracy about the condition that I was in. And I looked at Kelly and I said, should I do it? And without saying a word, she just nodded. So the next day I was in surgery and both of my feet were amputated. A week later, I was visited by another surgeon who was looking at my hands. They had given me exercises to do with my fingers to try to get the blood flow going again to see if we could do some reversal of damage, but that really wasn't the case. So I had a second surgery and it was on both of my hands. On my left hand, my pinky was completely amputated. The other three fingers were shortened down to the first knuckle and my thumb was left intact. On my right hand, 
they did do some shortening and some cleaning up of the tissue, but I never saw the result of that. And they said, Chris, in two weeks, we're going to go and look at your hand again and see how it's doing. So after two weeks, we're back in the operating room again, and they took some more of my fingers and said, okay, we're hoping that this is going to stop the advance of gangrene and that you will be able to save some of your hand. And so they bandaged it back up. And yet again, I wasn't able to see it at all. It was just completely bandaged. Finally, the surgeon on a third surgery came back and said, we need to take the rest of your fingers and your whole hand. And so it was amputated at the wrist at that point in time. And I know you've had a lot to deal with since that time, obviously, to, you know, heal, but also have physical therapy and things like that to begin to learn what you've termed a new normal for you. What an amazing story thus far. And we've been talking here with Chris Parker, class of 1993, and hearing about his remarkable battle and recovery from a life-threatening case of COVID-19. And we'll be right back after this. The Grove City College Alumni Office wants to know the best way to contact you and the most recent changes in your life. Edit your alumni profile at alumni.gcc.edu update. This includes your home and work address, your last name, if recently married, and your email address and much more. By keeping the college updated, the online alumni directory allows you to stay in touch with classmates, find fraternity brothers or sorority sisters, and locate alumni in your region or area of expertise. You can use the alumni directory at alumni.gcc.edu slash alumni directory. Thank you for keeping in touch. Welcome back to the Mid the Pines podcast. Once again, this is Joni Baumgartner. My guest today is Christopher Parker, class of 1993. We've been talking to you, Chris, about this incredible battle that you waged with COVID-19 in the fall of 2021. And you have shared that your diabetes had led to a much worse case than others might have experienced. I wanted to go back just a little bit to the time that, that you were in the hospital. You were intubated, you shared for, uh, I think it was three weeks, you said, right? Yeah. Once you came off of the ventilator, what was going through your mind? So when I first was transitioned to what they call 3G, I really wasn't that with it. And as I was waking up, I knew that I was in the hospital, but I didn't know why. But I also understood that I needed to be there. So there was no question in my mind. I hadn't any recollection of what had happened, but knowing that I needed to be there, I purposed in my heart that I was going to be thankful for every piece of assistance that I received and that I was going to voice that to people and that I was going to be grateful. You know, when you become a Christian, people say that you have to hide God's scripture in your heart. And it was during that time that scripture would come back to me. And I would use that as a way to connect with God and to almost comfort myself. Again, because it's a little scary waking up in a hospital after you've taken a nap <laughs> for three yes. weeks. Yes. Um, the staff there was wonderful to me. They were kind and caring and just showed God's love in a, in a way that most people fortunately don't experience the way that they helped me to bathe and, and to rotate my body because understand that 
when you've been in a coma for three weeks, you lose a lot of body mass and muscle. And so even moving, you know, is really hard. And, and they would help by adjusting me and making sure that I was comfortable and spending time talking with me. So it's, it was graciousness there. And you shared with me previously too, you mentioned your nurse Kelly, and you kind of alluded to the fact that you felt like she was sort of an angel sent by God to to watch out for you, but she did that in a pretty specific way. Tell me about how she helped your kids get to come and visit you. Sure. Understand that I spoke with Tracy and my kids every single day on the phone, but I needed them to be with me. And so Kelly spoke to the charge nurse, asked if she could arrange for them to come and visit. The children were not permitted into the hospital. That was just hospital policy. So Kelly arranged for us to have a visit outside of one of the entrances. So she got me loaded into my hospital chair and we went downstairs and out the door and sat outside on a nice fall afternoon and visited for about 20 minutes. Uh, At that time, I was still fully covered up by blankets and whatnot. I didn't want my kids to see where I had had the amputations. We just spoke with the kids and told them, you know, daddy's going to look a little bit different when he comes home, but I'm still the same. And we talked about the fact that I would get prosthetics for both my legs and my hand. And my youngest son, Caleb, said, that's okay, dad. I'll just call you Robo Dad. (laughs) That's awesome. So Caleb has always been the one just to roll with the punches. And even today, like if we're sitting on the couch together, he grabs my right arm and just kind of massages it and just holds it as we sit and watch television or if I'm reading a book to him. So it's just one of those things where he has that gift of grace too. Well, sounds a lot like unconditional love. Very he much loves so. you no matter what. Well, after a very long stay in the hospital, you did finally become well enough to go home. Tell me what that transition was like. Well, I was at the Geisinger Center for 78 days, and that was to deal with everything prior to being able to go to a rehabilitation center in Tawanda, Pennsylvania. So I was in the rehab center for uh, 12 days learning skills of how to transfer from a bed to a wheelchair and how to transfer from a wheelchair into the shower and things like that. They really wanted to keep me until December 24th. And I said, no, that's not happening. I said, I need to go home by the 23rd. And there's a reason for that. The 23rd is my dad's birthday. I wanted it to be something more joyous instead of a time of mourning and remembrance of my father. So my wife came and got me on the 23rd and we came home and my kids met me in the driveway cheering. That's that's redemption there. Yeah. From having lost your dad and then having a triumph in your own personal health journey as a way to celebrate him that you right. finally got to go home. What a great, right. a great day that must've been. You've shared with me too, that since you got to go home and of course begin a, a much more rigorous journey with physical therapy and occupational therapy, that um, there was someone named Eileen that you interacted with who helped you along the way. Will you tell me a little bit about her? Sure. Eileen is my physical therapist and It's funny how paths cross. Many years ago, I had Eileen's daughter as a student at the high school. So Eileen came in the first day and I'm looking at her and I'm I'm trying to decipher how I know her. And I finally said, do you have a daughter named Lauren? And she goes, why, yes, I do. 
she goes so you do remember me and i said yes i i very much so remember you as time unfolded and as we got to know more about each other she dropped a few hints that she was a fellow believer and mm -hmm. so we just opened up the floodgates and we have the most amazing conversations as i'm working on physical therapy you know we talked about our experiences of going to the same church but at different times in our lives um we talked about you know faith and how it applies to what's happening in the world today how god has worked in my life and bringing me so far and saving me and giving this opportunity to quote unquote get back on my feet so she started first by working on building up my muscle strength and by then i got my first prosthetics for my legs and right now i use either crutches with her present or a walker and i can do the walker on my own she's here for me and that common bond of having jesus as our savior makes it all the better and god knew the person that i needed to have as a physical therapist it sounds like she inspired you in a lot of ways in your progress and in your healing and just in your faith. But you're inspiring a lot of people. Your fellow classmate from 1993 here at the college, Linda Hall James, she is the person that reached out to me to say that we should interview you. What she said to me was that the way that you share your testimony about having gone through this ordeal was just incredible and inspiring to other people as far as just how your faith has grown through this and and that you give glory to God even still uh, in your circumstances. And so I wanted to ask specifically, what are some of the ways that, that you've experienced God's glory? You've mentioned a few already. What would you add to that? The way that people sent cards and letters and encouragement I just think of myself as the average guy who's just trying to make a difference by living a good life and setting a good example. Two instances come to mind right away. I had a parent of a former student write me and said, you had my son in elementary school. You had such an impact on him. We just wanted to thank you for your contribution to his life. And another letter that I received was from a group of students that I had back in 2001. They were all of my seniors from marching band that year. They wanted to bless my family with a monetary donation because they knew that we had need, but also because of the way we had fun and interacted when I was still teaching them all the way back in 2001. When I found out about that, it brought tears to my eyes because Again, I don't think of myself as anyone really special. I just think of myself as the average person just trying to live my life the way God would intend. And as far as that journey with God and just trying to live live as he would have you live, that all started back here at Grove City College. You shared that with me, that that's really where your faith journey began. Would you tell me some about that too? Sure. Um, I want to start about like the first time that I set foot on Grove City's campus was for a college visit. I knew immediately that this is where I wanted to be, but I didn't know why. I didn't have a relationship with Christ at that time. I hadn't gone to church since I was in sixth grade. And so it's funny, I picked Grove City to visit because they had a marching band and that was something that I wanted to do in life. You know, went through the whole process of applying and interviewing and auditioning and was accepted into the program. My freshman year, I kind of acted like a person who had a chip on their shoulder though. And uh, that was, a way that God allowed me to uh, get my feet taken out a few times and humble me to know that I needed him. 
by my sophomore year, I decided that I was going to come back with a new attitude to Grove City and, and see how that went. And it was, it was kind of funny, and it's going to seem trivial at the time, but it was in the spring semester of my sophomore year that it was time to apply to be in a housing group. And I had applied to be in a group called the Alpha Sigs or Alpha Sigma, and I didn't make it through. And so I had some questions in my own mind of, you know, where was I going to live next year? Because I really wanted to live on that floor in Lincoln Hall. It, again, it might sound trivial to some people, but it's what brought me to Christ. So one night I got into a very loud discussion with God in a grove of trees up by the Fine Arts Center. And I said, okay, you win. And I surrendered my life to Christ that night. And ironically, later on, uh, I was extended an invitation to become a member of Alpha Sigma. And I, that wasn't like a God thing as far as, oh, I'm going to reward you, Chris, for accepting me. But that's where the journey began. So back in 91, gave my life to Christ. And since then, it's been wonderful. It's been a, a journey of growth, uh, some trials and tribulations throughout the way. But you learn early on that God doesn't make the road easy for you because you don't grow on an easy road or on an easy journey. It's on the difficult journeys that you grow. It's where your faith is tested and where you become a stronger person because you lean into God more than you ever have before. I really believe that God is using you and what you're what you're doing and what you're going through right now um, just to bring honor to him. And I'm, I'm really excited to hear about uh, what's next for you. You've shared that you have made great strides already in your healing. Tell us a little bit about that and then maybe tell us what the next few months ahead will hold. So I've had my prosthetics now for about four weeks and I'm able to walk very well. I now can get out of the house more often. You know, even just being able to get into the van without assistance is a huge step there. Last Wednesday on April 6th, I traveled back to my prosthetist. The really amazing thing is that we started working on the prosthetic for my arm. Uh, Sean, who's my prosthetist, attached a couple sensors to my arm right below my elbow um, and told me to flex my muscles and I was able to start opening and closing the fingers on my new prosthetic hand. It's kind of weird looking at first because it's all joints and servos that make it move, but eventually that will be covered with a silicone skin so it looks more human, but right now it does look very robotic. Well, um, you're robo-dad after all. Yeah, right? <laughs> I am robo-dad. It was fun and I look forward to being able to do more with that. The hand itself, like I will probably learn by muscle memory four to five gestures or movements, but it's capable up to 24 separate positions to help sure. me with whatever I need, some of which I'll control with a cell phone. So we'll see how it goes. You had shared with me earlier too that you have a couple of concrete goals for yourself. What are those? One of the things that I want to do is I want to start having an opportunity to share my story through more than just social media. I've been asked to come to my own church and speak with our teens about the journey that I'm on currently and how God has been a part of that journey. This past Christmas, after I just got home, I was contacted by a friend of mine from college 
Maurice Franz. He serves as a pastor at St. Lutheran's Church outside of Pittsburgh. And he knew about my story from following it on social media. And he'd asked if he could share that on the Christmas Eve service that they were having. Additionally, a former student of mine that I had back at Falconer Central School in marching band, she says, Mr. Parker, I'd like you to come to my church and talk as well. What I would like to be able to do eventually is through public speaking, share my story, which really isn't my story. It's God's story. It's not only about the COVID effects, but it's about healing. It's about dealing with depression because this hasn't always been an easy road. And sometimes you do get down and that's where you lean into God all the more. Right. And it sounds like you already have these great words of wisdom for anyone who is struggling with a long-term illness or some condition that really kind of changes their life as they knew it. What other uh, wisdom or advice could you share just out of your own experience of being a survivor of this pandemic? You can't do it on your own. If it weren't for my wife and if it weren't for my friends and family and my church family, I would not be where I am today. The other thing is expect to be loved on by other people. I didn't always feel like I was worthy of that love, but this has just been an incredible journey where people have showed up just to sit and talk with me. When I first got home every afternoon, my church had arranged for someone to come and visit with me and spend time with me. And that's just touching. It's mm, a great gift. Yeah. Great gift to always know you don't have to be alone. You know, you, we know you're not alone. Just God's presence is always there with you. But uh, the physical presence of of others to help carry you through something must be so powerful. It is. the The conversations that I've been able to have with people because of my disabilities now are incredible. And it's opened my eyes to things that I never thought about before. I'm now a handicapped individual. And never did I think that I would be saying something like that. And because of my career path and my love for the arts, I now look for artists, musicians who are disabled, who can be featured in the arts. Just because this has happened to me doesn't mean that I can't go forward and perform in the arts. Recently, um, we took my children to the Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. And I was in a wheelchair and this little girl just kept on looking at me and wondering what was different about me. Unfortunately, her mom just kept on trying to scoot her away, but that would have been a great opportunity for me to talk with her and just say, hey, I'm just like you. I just look a little different now. Your heart is there. You know, you want to do that uh, and be that that testimony and share that witness with people. So I pray that you do get many, many, many more opportunities. And I'm thankful that you have been willing to share your story here on this podcast. And we hope that alumni everywhere who have listened really take that away, that you're not alone and that there's, there's a plan for you, even in the struggles, even in the hardships of life, that you have a hope and a future as Jeremiah 29, 11 says, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what God accomplishes in your life. And we'll definitely be following you and your story I know you told me, too, that you're excited later this year. You you have a goal of driving again. <laughs> I have a goal to learn how to drive again because when you have prosthetics, I don't have an ankle that's going to move. It's a static ankle. So I have to learn how to use my thigh muscles, the accelerator or the brake. 
my wife's going to have to be with me and, and you can pray for her because I think it might be a scary time <laughs> as Chris gets behind the wheel again. Another goal that I have is to be able to walk a 5K. So. Well, I'll challenge you. Um, one year from now, in April, we actually are doing our Wolverine Tracks 5K. It's it's virtual so that alumni all over the country can participate. I hope that that will be something that you can join us for. Absolutely. Thank you so much just for your transparency and your willingness to share your journey and you are impacting other lives in the process. So I'm so thankful for you talking with me today, Chris. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Home is where everything begins. Thank you for listening to the Mid the Pines podcast. Explore more episodes at alumni.gcc.edu slash podcast. Our co-producers are Joni Baumgartner and Amy Evans. Research provided by Janice Zinsner Inman, class of 1987. Audio editing is provided by Jennifer Hiles. Our theme music is Home, courtesy of the family of the late David M. Bailey, class of 1988. Contact us at alumni at gcc.edu for more information. We hope you'll join us again, Mid the Pines.